So today we, uh, we come to the conclusion of what has been an intermittent series through the book of 1 Timothy. And um, particularly we, we confront or we engage a Paul, an Apostle Paul, who, well, shows quite an emphatic kind of tone here. A tone of urgency, a tone of, of a clarion call to the church to kind of wake up and and to be aware of the realities of what it will be, and what it will take to, to live in this world um, and to live in a manner that will then lead to flourishing and, and great contentment, ultimately, of course, an eternal life over against the world that, that arounds us is leading us to destruction. It's a very stark contrast that is presented in our passage. And particularly, you remember that throughout the book of Timothy, uh, there has been this alarm concerning particularly the influence of, of self-appointed, populist-driven Christian leaders, and especially how their manner of teaching, however well-intended, was leading the faithful astray from the, the foundations and the teachings of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. It's a theme he returns to as well in his second letter, which tells me that Ephesus was deeply struggling with this kind of syncretistic Christianity that was happening even in as early as the first century. This Christianity that was part Christian but part worldly, if you will. A Christianity that was, was seeking to find common ground with the world in a manner to be witness to the world, and yet the result would be to lose their light. In fact, Paul says this exact thing in the book of Ephesians. Uh, when he writes to them and, and warns them that they're supposed to be light, but, but in the midst of darkness. They are to redeem the days, but the days, we must remember, are tempting. They're evil. So we're to redeem them. And so here again, we remember a great theme where in 2 Timothy 4, 3, he tells them later in the second book what he's trying to say here in the first, which is, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound grounded teachings. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I'm telling you, if this doesn't describe the present age, I don't know what does. And so today, Paul will want us to consider our relationship to the world. Particularly as in Christ's prayer in John 17 that prays that we might be one even as the world uh, even as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, that we then might be one with him and, and our love and our commandment, if you will, that great commandment to love, to have as our first love, God, even as that first love will be fleshed out in our love one for another, even in the fact that it will be, be filled in our communion of one another. And so even there, though, I remember in John how it is that, that he prays for them, that that, that for us, that God would not take us out of the world, but oh, he prayed that God would save us from the evil that is in the world. And so I find that this passage is of particular importance as we consider then our relationship to the world fleshed out. With that, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that um, you speak to us, you speak truth into our lives as we see in this passage, and we pray you'd make us open hearted to this, not resistant, not defensive, not afraid, 
or even as your passage reminds us that this kind of godliness that you desire of us leads to genuine gain, a gain that, that it transcends the kind of gains that, that this world around us can offer when a world rooted and, and, and seated on th themes and values and worldviews that are contrary to Christ. Help us, Lord, to know and even to be willing to embrace the otherness of our faith in relationship to the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just notice that the, uh, the, the, this last sort of exhortation is, is addressed to the O man of God or O person of God. It's interesting, and in this in the Old Testament was a term reserved for the leaders of Israel. It was applied, for instance, to Moses and to Samuel and to David and the prophet Shemaiah, to Elijah, Elisha, Agdaliah, and on it goes, three anonymous prophets. But as we come into the New Testament, especially the way Paul uses it, he uses it specially to, to charge Christians to be impactful Christians. So for instance, he says in 2 Timothy, he'll use the same phrase, that the man of God or the person of God would be complete and equipped with every good work. That is to say that, that here he's saying in so many words to you and to me today, you want to be a person of impact? You want to be a person who can stand in this, who can be in this world, but not be destroyed with it? These then are his instructions to the old person of God, those who want to be that kind of a Christian as per, or pertaining to the emerging key leaders, if you will, even as Timothy here is particularly one of his protégés for that end. And so let's look at what he says with that in mind. With the question in your head, I want to be a witness. I want to be impactful. I want to have an impactful relationship to my children for Christ. I want to have an impactful relationship to my husband or my wife, to my neighbor, to my friend, to my colleague. On it goes. And yet I also want to flourish as a Christian. And I am aware, as we're about to be shown, that there are great, great, and subtle even temptations to not be an impactful Christian. And so let's look at these. First of all, in verses 1 particularly, what does he tell us to do then? He says, flee. Flee these things. Now that's going to open up a, an opportunity for us to understand what he means. Very quickly, of course, to flee he will explain, for instance, James will use the same word in chapter 4 when he says, submit yourself to God. That is to say, don't submit yourself to other gods. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now that's interesting here that to flee, the devil to leave you, is for us to resist him. To flee then means not simply to separate ourselves from the people of the world, as Paul, as Christ has prayed. But it's to resist, it's to flee those cantagons, those, those aspects of the world that are contagious for evil. It's more clearly described than in other instances, like in 1 Corinthians, therefore, my beloved, free, flee idolatry. 
that is flee empowering other things, these things, if you will, from their becoming your gods. In other words, in the context, again, of the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to come to it at the end of the sermon again, when I keep referring to it, but, but in the context of that, to flee uniting yourself, your soul, your love, your passions, flee uniting yourself to other ambitions that are not God. Here Paul will understand these things specifically as counter things to godliness. Flee those things that are counter to making God your first love, God your first object of, of devotion, God your first value system. You see this contrast developing. Flee, leave. And the word literally has an urgency to it. It's not just leave. Leave, no. When you say the word flee, you mean like, like a bat out of you know where, you're running. That's what comes to my mind. It's this sense of just, I'm getting out of here. I'm in grave danger. It's, it's a word that would describe what you would do in a burning house. It's not a word that would describe something where you're just kind of uh, lazily and casually, oh, I think I'm going to kind of sneak out of here. No, let's rush out of here. This word flee. Because the, the object here, the sense of it here, as you'll see, is, is this word, the very word flee, wants to imply that there's some grave danger that you seem not to be aware of, which is why emphatically and in this great imperatival sense, he's saying, get out, flee. But of course, flee is not to leave the world, but it's to leave the idolatries of the world. It's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. 2 Timothy uses this language again, to flee youthful passions and to pursue. And what's interesting about 2 Timothy 2 then is he tells us to pursue the exact same things that he's going to tell us to pursue in this passage in 1 Timothy. So clearly that makes sense, to flee youthful passions. Now Paul and Timothy, both Timothys, 1 and 2 Timothy, as I've just said, is, is particularly concerned for the populism, the populism that's happening in Ephesus. The way in which Christianity has been perverted in order to accommodate the idols of the world. He specifically uh, references these things in verses 2 all the way through 10 right before. But you, O person of God, flee these things. These things related to what? They relate very much to the things of other gods. He talks about these things in verses 2 and following as, as these things that pertain to different doctrines. But be, keep in mind, these are not unchristian sounding doctrines, as he's explained throughout Timothy. These are doctrines that, that have the semantics of Christianity that is happening in Ephesus. And yet has perverted the apostolic teaching in a manner that syncretizes Christianity with the Ephesian worldview. It's, it's like worshiping Baal in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what they did in the, first, in, in the Old Testament. Worshiping Yahweh, but using a, a value system, a, a practice, a liturgy, if you want to use that word, a, a way of moving your life in a way that moved 
according to the idolatry of Baal, even though you have Christianized it. I just cannot express how Paul is concerned for this, as I've been rooted in this, in his, in this letter, and how much I resonate with that for us today. You can have the semantics of Christian faith and practice. You can, you can speak and you can transform just about any idol into Christianity in terms of the use of the semantics. But it's liturgies, it's movements, it's lifestyle is according to another system than the system we call Christianity. And so he's concerned that these things are different doctrines that don't agree with the healthy words. Literally that word sound means it's a medical term. These medicinal words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness. Godliness, again, is a very crucial word in this passage, as it is in Timothy. Because godliness gets at both beliefs, the faith that we hold to, but also the lifestyle that accommodates it. But more importantly, it gets to our affection. Godliness at its core is the life of fearing God. By fearing God, I mean recognizing that God and God alone has the power to affect our world and our lives for flourishing. It's who and what God we believe in to make us flourish. That's why this passage, if you'll notice, ends with this glorious doxology of God. He's contrasting a kind of of liturgical lifestyle, a, a way that we worship in the everyday ebb and flow of our lives that corresponds to other gods even as we describe ourselves as Christians, are we getting this? James K. Smith, I put it on the board, says it this way, our loves and imaginations are constricted by all sorts of liturgies that are loaded with a vision of the good life. Did you hear that? Secular liturgies loaded with a vision of the good life. To be immersed in those secular liturgies is to be habitated to long for what they promise. This describes, I think, what Paul is worried about here. A liturgy, of course, is is the movements of our lives. Like a worship liturgy, there are movements that walk us through our union with God through this service today. So too, we have a lifestyle, but it's a lifestyle that might be described as, I'm a Christian. But the movements, the practices, the ebb and flow, where we spend our time, how much we spend our time, the systems that we uh, uh, construct for our lives become the systems of this world. Systems that train our affections in a manner that we are no longer godly. That is, our first love, our first ambition, driving our systems. And so he goes on, these unhealthy, these medicinally speaking, unhealthy kinds of, of worldviews that impact our lives. And notice what he says. What, what happens? What, what do you begin to discern when your liturgy is off kilter? When your liturgy of life is according to the liturgy of the bales of our world today? Well, 
He describes how it results in all kinds of frictions and divisions. That is to say that our impacts start to, to be decayed and, and, and soiled and troubled. But we don't see. You see, that's the, that's the thing that Paul's worried about. Why this is so emphatic? Because we don't see the link. We don't see sometimes when I do marriage counseling that it's not because these two people are not Christians and who do not profess faith in Christ. It's because they're living every day of their life in a secular liturgy. A liturgy that puts values on, on things that destroy their relationship. I've used the term, uh, the, the choreography versus the dance floor. And, and they're dancing to a choreography that is Baal worship. Even though they're Christians semantically on the dance floor wearing a fine Christian. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? How would you see? He says these things are medicinally unhealthy. How would you see it? How would you know it? How would you know the impact of this sort of secular liturgy that, that is not according to godliness? These unsound words that are so popular even in these Christianized secular liturgies. He says it's gonna, you'll see them in your relationships, contentions, you know, a, 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 a propensity to argue and to fight. In other words, you just feel it, don't you, in our world? Look at the public square, the fights, the divisions, either or, you against me. There's just very rare moments these days when you see even a politician or, or even some or, you know, worldly leader who will transcend that and say, guys, we've got to find a way to get beyond this, this fighting. Christians are part of it. We just so get sucked right into it. So sad, so sad. Frictions, divisions, contentions, adversarialisms, fightings, arguing. He talks about how our lives are, are become discontent, driven by envy. Lives that are never quite satisfied. Notice how many times he, in so many words, talks about this issue of contentment. How would you know these liturgies, these secular liturgies? You'll see a people who are just anxious all the time, who are driven by envy, who feel powerless in their envy and therefore are discontent. He talks about greediness. It's interesting that he gives one illustration, but you can be greedy in all sorts of things, greedy for power, greedy for wealth, greedy for pleasure. He speaks of all these in 2 Timothy 2. How we're lovers of, lovers of, lovers of, lovers of. This sense of, of we are passionate for all these things that, that we believe offer us the good life. Today, just confessing my sins today, I, I, with this passage in mind, I found myself confessing just, just the, 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 my, my love, my, my passion for pleasure. The ways in which my mind can so quickly start thinking that that if I were just to have this experience or go be able to do this or, or have a day like this, and all of a sudden I begin to be consumed by it. How would you know these destructive, these things that Paul is concerned will destroy us and that will particularly destroy our impact for Christ? Well, these are the ways. It's interesting, again, he turns to this theme in verse 7 through 10, where, again, speaking here just of the love of wealth. Again, it's, Paul's never against 
having a good experience or even having wealth. It's when these things become our gods, when we think these things will satisfy us. I mean, you can just, just sur- you know, survey the world. It's amazing how those who have actually studied happiness show that happiness does not correlate to much of the things that we, we empower to make us happy. There's something deeper about happiness. And so he goes on to say how they've pierced themselves with many pangs into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Flee these things, Christian. I want you to think right now before we move forward, what is it you need to flee? What are the, these things that you need and I need to awaken to that are dangerous things? that looks so innocent and so normal because, again, these are these things that are just the way normal people live in a world. And that's why they're so dangerous. Because with Christian semantics, they're normalized. What are these things? Flee them. But, of course, what is especially noteworthy is that the ethical appeal here has both a negative and a positive aspect. There's a kind of complementariness to, to the, you must flee, but you don't just stop. You just don't quit. You just don't not fight. But you rather then replace it with a good fight, with a good pursuit. And so notice how he turns this. Flee and then pursue. It's clearly the outline of your passage. Flee and then pursue. That is to say, if positively we are to go in hot pursuit of this goodness, of, of the sound teaching, the combination is important. What does he say? Pursue, that is to engage. It's not just to give up. It's to engage those teachings and practices that are unto godliness couple of observations here about this. Notice that these things that we're to pursue, they're all value words. They're words that kind of form a sense of our identity versus behavior words. I think that's intentional here. Instead of listing a list of behaviors, he lists a list of values. A person that is righteous Pursue righteousness. A person that is godly, pursue godliness. A person who is of the faith, whose worldview is driven by the doctrines of of his or her belief, the convictions of his or her belief, the faith. A person who lives and acts in love, who is steadfast, who is gentle. You see, this makes the question a little different. It's not to produce a moralistic church with a little superficial list of do's and don'ts. I know that's the kind of Christianity that tends to exist in this Christendom kind of world. But he goes so much deeper than that. Though it will affect your behaviors significantly. That is to say, to do the right thing to persons. Right thing is not the same as to be polite, maybe, though it could be. 
It's not the same thing as to be nice. The right thing for someone is not often the thing that is what that someone wants you to say or do. It could be tough love. It could be easy love, though, too. Don't make love not easy. Sometimes it may be easy. Sometimes it may be tough. You see, he uses words that transcend these kind of either-or categories. Do the right thing. That is righteousness. Be godly for your life to be considered on God as your first love, your first priority, your first everything. That is not then, that is contrasted then you could say with being a man pleaser or human pleaser. Not that you won't please people sometimes. See, it transcends that. To be a person of faith is not to be a person that is, uh, uh, is to be not a person of unbelief only, but a person of false belief. To be a person of love is not to be a person of self-interest, but a rather a person that is interested in the flourishing of God's holy name in this world and the flourishing of his people. Gentle versus harsh, but gentle isn't weak. These are incredible words if you stop to think about it. And he's trying to say it again. Flee these things and then pursue these things, these things that pertain to godliness. There's something about these things that we are to pursue as informed by Christ and the gospel that makes us stand out, though. And so with this word pursue, he then just stacks it up. This is where, if you're hearing a sermon, you could hear Paul starting to just about scream. He's starting to pound. He's wanting with desperateness to just get right into your heart. He says, pursue these things. And then he adds, take hold. That is to actively reach out for the Christian faith. To not shy away from it, not to hide, not to be passive, not to be casual. You know, if you just stop and think about it, there's absolutely nothing more obnoxious than casual Christians. I mean, how could you possibly treat what we say we believe casually? It's just mind-blowing what we say we believe. And so Paul here is trying to say, can't take this stuff casually. Take hold of it aggressively. It's not waiting for it to smack you in the face. It's to go after it. Take hold of it about which you made the good confession. You see how he relates that? If this is what you say you believe, Christians, about that which you've made the good profession, quote-unquote, talking to Timothy, in the context of many witnesses, he's clearly referring to his day of baptism and, and entry into the profession of faith into the body of Christ. He says, if you really believe what you made as your confession of life, he says, take hold of it. And then he goes in verse 12, fight for it, pursue it, take hold of it, fight for it, the good fight of the faith. Notice the faith with the article. It's important. It's not just fight for, or for faithfulness, a life of faithfulness, but it's fight for what we believe, making it part of our liturgy, part of our life, our values. 
Timothy's duty then involves fight as well as flight. He's to flight and then fight. It's standing as well as running. And then finally, I charge you. I charge you. To keep the commandments. What does he mean, commandment? It's one commandment, by the way, not commandments, plural. He's referring there, I think, to that ultimate, that ultimate love. That ultimate contract covenant we have with God. Wherein the commandment here is the sum of the gospel. How Christ would summon up, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. The commandment. Love. Now, why would we do this? Why would we flee? What's going on? Notice he's now speaking into our hearts. Why would you flee, and why would you pursue, and take hold of, and fight, and under this great charge from Paul? Well, he reminds us, on the surface level at least, that there is great gain in godliness. These things we are called to flee all related to a very false and depraved way of going after the good life, he's argued. And ultimately, the things we are called to pursue and even fight for are the things that truly do lead to a life of flourishing. Godliness, he says in verse 6, is a means of great gain. Do we believe that, really? Well, back to that quote I gave you from K. Smith, James K. Smith. If our whole world is in a liturgical movement. You see, what we do, what he's arguing there is that the way we, we, the way we live our life, the, the movements that define our lives, they are affecting our loves. That's the book we've been studying downstairs. You are what you love. And he argues in that book that what we love is as much what we're taught to love, probably less what we're taught to love, and what our practices, what the ebb and flow of our lives habitate us to love. You know, I love my wife not because I got the doctrine of Lisa Graham book. I love my wife because of the habitation that I've had with her over now 30-something years, six, I think. But it's habitating. It's that ebb and flow, most of which I can't even chronicle for you. Just coming downstairs together in the morning and going upstairs together in the morning and going to bed. But then you start to think, what are those habits? What are those mannerisms? That's another good word. That define our relationship that will either be toxic to our love or will be conducive to our love. You could start thinking about the habits of sleeping together, the habits of eating together, the habits of having fun together, the habits, the habits, the habits. Being married, taking a vow doesn't make love. Habits make love. And that's Paul's point, I think. That this way of godliness and living and fleeing those things which are toxic to ungodliness but are conducive to godliness are going to be great gain. Our love with Christ will flourish. Our love with our neighbor will flourish. It's amazing. And so godliness is a means of great gains. 
Our second motivation, notice though, is that if there's any liturgy, if there's any, any confession in order to drive our practices, our habits, our mannerisms, our ebb and flow of life, if there's anything that, that ought to be driving, it's the reality that this life is temporal. That this life is short-lived. It is very short-lived. Ask anyone that's older and they'll tell you it is a short life that we live. And here, of course, Paul gets to that. How it is that the world's teachings and practices are destined for eternal destruction. Not only does it destroy the, the gain of this life, but it will destroy our eternal life. There's much at stake here. And I then return to this beginning. Oh, you, person, who would have a great impact on your children, what would it take to have that impact? Because eternal life is at stake. Not just this world and the kind of contentment and the kind of flourishing gain that this, this will all involve. And so he speaks of the eternity of all of this. And then what is our ultimate hope then? Comes right back to where this is all going, doesn't it? At the end of the day, there's only one God. And the liturgy that conforms to that truth is the liturgy, the practices, the worldview that result in these incredible gains. There's only one God. Let that sink deep into your soul. There's only one who is the blessed and only sovereign, who is the king over all pseudo-kings, who is the Lord over all underlords, who alone, do you notice the language here? There's only one God is his statement over and over again. The blessed and only sovereign, who alone has immortality, which that is to say is, is eternal and never changing, who dwells in an unapproachable light, that is, who's other than all the other gods of this world that are of our own making, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him, therefore, be honor and eternal dominions. Paul is begging us. And God is begging you today, really take this seriously. Oh, person who would be a person of God. Now, I want to end with something that I've intentionally skipped until now. Did you notice how this whole thing started? Did any of you recognize that I just skipped right over the very first words of this, of this passage? It's simple, but it is incredibly profound. He starts the whole thing off with, but you. But you. There's something about that that, that really ought to awaken us. He's forming, obviously, a conjunction of contrast here. He's trying to make a point about your identity here. That our identity cannot continue to be the identity 
wherein we seek to find common ground with the world in order even to reach the world. Let me say that again. You see, in Christendom, the world was, was uh, again, there was, there was a lot of, of Western secular values in the American context, let's say, of the West. Americana, and yet there was a lot of seeking to find common ground with Christianity and Americana. And I'm not saying there aren't some overlappings. That's not, I'm not here to get into a culture war discussion here. But very subtly, the populism, the democratization, the individualism, the values that shape Western society became Christianized in Christendom. Where we forgot that there's a fundamental identity that is probably more prominent than any other identity that I could show you in the scripture, and that is Christians who are for real Christians are aliens in this world as they live in this world. Some have described it resident aliens. First Peter, his whole book is about that. Like we are to be understood. Our identity must remember that we are like exiles in a foreign place. This thing is trying to get you and us to, to consider how it is that while we are called to live in the world, we must be much more diligent and comfortable in our skin being different. Are you comfortable with being different? Does that make you nervous in your workplace, in your neighborhood, at your school, to be different? Especially the liturgy that, that I know I adopted early on, the liturgy of the of the. Uh, achievement pipeline is a liturgy that sought to accommodate to the liturgy of this world. A world that says if you want to gain, you're going to sell your soul to studies. A world that says if you're going to gain, you've got to sell your soul to athleticism. You've got to sell your soul to wealth. You've got to sell your soul, and you can just go on and on and on to being popular. There's something really scary about this passage for me, and I suspect for you as well. Because it's calling me to change my very posture and identity in this world. But you cannot be read in any other way as to say you just are going to stand out. You are not, if you are going to live this way, fleeing these systems of evil and pursuing these systems of godliness. It's not that we will be hated all the time. Sometimes we'll be loved. Our mercy, our justice, and other such things will manifest itself in ways that are delightfully uh, cheerful and happy and, and, and refreshing to our world. Sometimes when we fail to acknowledge Caesar as our Lord, whatever the Caesar is, it's that lordship thing that gets at the, that grates these other idols that are inculcated into the life of this world. As I've said many times, Christians did not get persecuted for being Christians. I could say they were, 
let's just say they were persecuted for being for real Christians. Christians who would not cave in to the lordship of Christ. Not just the belief that he exists as Savior. And so we, the take home to me is, are you willing? But you, he says in 1 Thessalonians, you're not in darkness. Brothers, for that day is surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness. Christ came into darkness, and you following Christ will walk every day into a place of darkness. He doesn't mean that there's a place lacking in common grace. There's beautiful things that people of all faith and none do, but when it comes to our redemptive values, to our system of understanding life and, and our authority in our lives, all of that, there is a darkness that you must, oh, person who would be an impactful person for Christ, you must make your peace with that. But you, brothers, do not give weary in doing good. But you, O oh person of God, flee these things. But you, however, follow my teachings over against the teachings of this world. I'm just reading passages where this but you comes up. But you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. But you always be sober-minded, endure suffering for the work of the evangelist. But you teach that according to which is sound doctrine. On and on you begin to get a spirituality in the Bible that is but you. Maybe I said it before, but when I was on staff with the campus ministry, I was taking this very course from a guy named John Stott and, uh, online, and, and he emphasized this. And, and uh, the, my woman, uh, we, we have a, a you know, head male, head female kind of co-leaders of our organization, and she uh, stitched me this but you on my birthday. And I think it's somewhere in my house hung up. Oh, I actually, I think it's in my office to this day. But it's just a reminder. You just can't go out in the world and, and not remember who we are. And you're impotent, Paul says, if you're not willing to go there. It's really that simple. To the degree that you can't live under the identity of but you is to the degree that you and your witness will be impotent. I'll leave then again with just this observation this idea of, of liturgy. What I hope you won't do is minimize Paul's passage here to mere behavioral issues. What I hope you will do is see that Paul is speaking truth into your conscience, your, your identity, by the way he set this out. That is to say, and I gave you a great quote here, but it's long been understood that, that our socialization in life is as important as our indoctrinization in life. How you socialize yourself in relationship to the world, Paul is concerned about. This liturgy again, this ebb and flow, these practices, these manners, these, these habits. Look at your habits. Look at how you live a day. Look at how you live a week. Look at how you live a year. It's those habits that are either according to godliness or according to this world. And that's going to invoke a much more interesting conversation with God as you begin to revisit your life and your values than just a mere behavioralistic approach. And so with that, 
Let us pray as we come now to this incredibly transforming event, event that wants us to rediscover our identity in Christ. Amen.